Well, good morning, Trinity Church. My name is Doug. I'm the interim lead pastor during this period of time as we search for our new pastor. We just averted a disaster. I lifted the pulpit up and the base came off. It's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Thank you, Morgan, for helping me. Hey, it's good to be back with you. Uh, Lisa and I took a couple of weeks off to get refreshed and spend some time with our grandsons who are here this morning uh, from Montana and my oldest daughter. So uh, it was nice to take a break, and I just want to thank the guest speakers who are here with us. James uh, Pettifee from uh, Biola University, and uh, of course, Pastor Bill and John Rittenhouse. I think they did a great job listening to them, and it was really nice to take a break and come back refreshed. I'm excited about what God is doing with our lead pastor search. I hope you are as well. And uh, I just also want to let you know, I know we have guest speakers from time to time as my work takes me in different directions, but when it's time for that lead pastor uh, to come and present himself, we'll definitely let you know, you know, that you need to be here that Sunday and that's who it is. So you don't have to keep guessing as we have a guest speaker. Is that the guy? I don't know. <laughs> That'll probably help them too. <laughs> Hey, today we are in 1 John chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, would you open them to the book of 1 John? And as you're getting there, uh, I want to just remind you that two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Bill walked us through verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, and he reminded us that in the same way that it's possible to, uh, to plug your phone into a charging cord at the end of the day and then realize the next morning it wasn't actually connected, you know, and your phone is dead. Um, in the same way it is possible for a person to think that they're plugged into Christ, they're saved, they're headed to heaven, and in reality, they're not connected at all. And uh, in fact, they're still dead in their sins. And we might say to ourselves, how can that be? Uh, especially as we you know, see people here at church and in, in home groups and coming out to work days and doing a variety of things that are reflective of what we would think a, a true follower in Christ would do. And we might even wonder, could that happen to me? John spends a lot of time in his book talking about uh, how that phenomena happens, of a person believing that they're saved and they aren't truly, but he also takes some time in the passage we're looking at today to say, here's how you can know. You can be absolutely certain that your faith is thriving and growing. So what I want to do with you this morning is take a little bit of time and look back into chapter 1 at the three tests that John lays out to say, look, if these things are happening in your life, you, you really need to sit back and, and think, am I truly in the faith? Am I truly living in the light? Or am I still in darkness? Am I still in my sins? So he gives us these three tests. And then the rest of the morning, I want to take time in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, where John says to us, this is how you know that you're in the faith. In fact, we have some chairs here this morning that talk about the different stages of faith that John references. That's kind of interesting. My cantaloupe will come in later. And Lisa, if you're wondering where the cantaloupe went, here it is. I grabbed it out of the refrigerator this morning. So John, uh, John talks to us about stages of faith this morning, and he says, hey, if you want to know where you're at in the faith, you can do that. And it's very simple. So let's... Uh, Let's take a look at the three tests, first of all. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. You'll find in uh, your text that he, he tells us there, that there are folks who think they're connected to Christ, and they often say that they have fellowship with God, uh, 
And remember, by the way, that's sacrificial community. That word koinonia means to personally sacrifice for the benefit of the community. It's what Jesus did for us. It's what we do for the church. He says, hey, I've got this sacrificial attitude toward my community, but in reality, they're walking in the darkness. And Paul writes in Ephesians 4, and we see it up on the screen here, um, a statement that reflects that. He says, now I say and testify in the Lord. We must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as the people who are still outside of the kingdom of God. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened. There's that same phrase John uses. They're still living in darkness. Paul says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They've become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Both of these authors, John and Paul, are, are making this point that a Christian can claim to be intimate with God, but if they're still gossiping, uh, gossiping about people behind their backs, if they're still greedy and they put money before people, if they're hard-hearted toward the needy, if they hate others who disagree with them, if they engage in indiscriminate sexuality, whether it's premarital or extramarital, they cheat customers, they lie to the government, he says, that is not the Christian life. That's not how we learn to walk it. They're living a lie, they're self-deceived. So that's test number one. Is your life being reflective of sacrificial community toward others and toward Christ? Test number two is in chapter 2, verse 4. John adds this and he says, if someone says, yes, I know God, but they don't keep his commands, they too are lying because true Christians follow the commands of Christ for living a new and different life. And then finally, in chapter 2, verse 6, you notice test number 3. He concludes that anyone who says, yep, Jesus and me, we're homies, we're buddies. You know, we really get along well. He abides in me through the Holy Spirit. But if they don't walk in the way that Jesus walked, again, they're deceiving themselves. There's nothing genuine to see there. Just move along. So John takes these tests, and he lays them out there for us. And he says, if we fail... In these tests, it's a clear sign that sin remains, that we are deceived, we are not connected to Christ, and we need to do something about it. And that's why he spends so much time writing about sin in this book. It's not a popular topic today. You don't hear a lot about it in secular culture. But notice chapter 2, verse 1. What does he say there? He says, I am writing these things to you that you may not continue in sin. Now, the word there is very interesting in the Greek text. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not continue to miss the mark. God sets these tests out there, and he says, this is what it means to follow Christ. That's the target. Are you hitting the target? Don't miss the mark. This was brought home to me, uh, this whole idea of missing the mark, uh, a number of years ago when I was watching uh, a TV program on the Discovery Channel called Mythbusters. I don't know if any of you remember that old TV program. Ran until about 2018, 252 episodes. And uh, yeah, here's, here's the uh, two guys, Adam Savage and, and Jamie Heineman. And what they would do is they would try to dispel myths or wives' tales or rumors, things that people always believe, but they would say, I don't know if that's really true. Well, there was one of their tests that went way wrong. In fact, they totally missed the mark. It was when they uh, decided to test the power of a cannonball about this size. 
And uh, they went to Alameda County to the county sheriff's uh, bomb disposal range, and they created and fired a homemade cannonball. But they missed the mark. The big water tower at the end of the range went right over the top of it. And that cannonball approached the nearby Tostahara Creek neighborhood where kids were just getting out of school. And as it's screaming toward that neighborhood, it blasted through a cinder block wall, skipped off a hillside, went 700 more feet through the air, and uh, bounced once in front of a home and ripped right through the front door. But it wasn't done. It raced up the stairs, blasted through the bedroom wall where a husband and wife and child were napping, and tore a hole through the side of the building. Still wasn't spent. It went through the house, crossed six lanes of traffic on Tassajara Road, ripped off several tiles from the roof of a, a home nearby, and finally slammed into the side of a Toyota uh, minivan in the driveway of a home where the, the dad and son had just exited the vehicle moments earlier. They were inside the house, heard the explosion, came back outside. There's a cannonball on the passenger side of their vehicle lying on the floor amidst all of the glass totally missed the mark, right? And the outcome, the Alameda County Sheriff's uh, spokesperson standing in front of the news after this event uh, said this, crazy, 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 crazy. They were tremendously lucky. No one was seriously injured or killed. And so what began as a well-intentioned desire to prove something was true or not turned into this trail of destruction and wreckage. That is what sin does in the life of a person. John says to us, we can be well-intentioned people, and, and we can be trying to nail some situations in life. Um, we're trying to get a job. We're dating a guy. We're raising kids. We're building a business. We're uh, loving our spouse. We're trying to not miss the mark. But so often we do because what we rely on is ourselves, our truth, our perspective, and so John says to avoid this kind of wreckage in our lives, here are the tests you need to be familiar with, but more than that, here is a way to know that you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ. Those tests kind of strip us down to the studs and say, look, this is what it means to follow Christ. And it can actually cause some of us who might have a more sensitive conscience about it to say, is that me? You ever doubted your salvation? You ever wondered, am I truly in the faith? John says, let me help you with that. So look at verses 12 through 17. Let me give you some encouragement this morning as we examine our faith. John lays out three stages of genuine, thriving faith. You can see them right up here on the chairs. Now, this section of John is very different than the rest of his epistle, rest of his letter. It's actually a song. We don't have the music but it was a poetic expression in the early church of what it meant to follow Christ. And I would love to see somebody put it to uh, music today, but it's, uh, it's not just instruction. It's this heartfelt sense of joy of what it means to follow Jesus. So you notice chair number one says child there. Now the Greek text actually says newborn, so that the spiritual umbilical cord is still attached, and the early breaths that that child is breathing are of forgiveness. I, I thought about... Uh, seeing if we could get a parent to volunteer their infant this morning to be in a basket up here, but I thought that's probably not a good idea. But that's the image I want you to have. There's a bassinet right there. It's a brand newborn child, just moments in the world. 
And, and John says this first stage of Christian living is marked by two things. First of all, they are forgiven. And secondly, they know that God is a good daddy. And that's all they need to know at that stage. My sins are forgiven, and God is a good daddy. And we're going to see that in the text. The second chair that you see there talks about spiritual young adults. And he says these are individuals who are strong in the Lord. They are actually able to overcome Satan and the evil in the world. And they do that because the word of God abides in them. So it's a little bit more of a lengthy description. And you'll see actually in, in uh, 1 John 2 here, John starts with the infant, and then he, he leaps over to the parents or fathers or the mature, and, and then comes back to this middle ground. But it's the second step. The third step is for the fathers or the mothers, those who are spiritually mature, the seniors in the faith. And it says that these are men and women who know daddy. It's the same Greek word, Abba but they know the daddy who is from eternity. Their seasoned faith has grown over the years and their experience of God has deepened to where they know that he is sovereign over everything. He is in control. He's the eternal God. He is able to care for them. So let's take a look at these one by one. Verse 12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then verse 13, he says again, I write to you children because you know the father. So again, they're brand new in the faith. It's a genuine faith, but it's based on this idea of forgiveness. It's so interesting to me that this is one of the areas that Satan targets. How many of us have ever thought, could God really forgive me? I mean, for all the things that I've done, could it really be true? Am I truly saved? Has God actually turned the course of my life? Am I truly a follower of Jesus? Have you ever had those thoughts? Off and on, I remember as a young man especially, having them from time to time, usually occurred after I had sinned in some way, and i think, oh, could God actually forgive me? But the first stage is really built on this whole idea of forgiveness. We are forgiven, and notice, not just for our sake. For whose sake are we forgiven? Look in your text. What does it say there? We are forgiven for his name's sake. That should strike you a little odd. Because we tend to be a little bit self-centered as humans. Well, he forgave me for my sake. That's true. But he also forgave us for his sake. We are forgiven because he decided to offer forgiveness. We are forgiven because he did what was required to give us forgiveness. He decided he wanted it done. And it's for his sake that we are forgiven. Which is a beautiful truth. Because what does our forgiveness rest on? My behavior or his? His behavior. You know, when Jesus cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. We often think it was for the enemies of Christ at the cross. It was for the ignorant at the cross, the Roman executioners, and that's true. But it applies to us today as well. Father, forgive them. They don't have any understanding of the consequences of sin or the outcomes of missing the mark. And like myth busters, there are times that our sins miss the mark and the outcome isn't pretty. But he says, we have been forgiven. And I love the fact that in this text, the Greek verb tense is perfect. That doesn't mean it's perfect. It's, an, it's a past tense verb. That means something happened in the past, but like a sustained key on the piano, it continues to make music in our lives. 
So it's a past tense. It didn't just stop there. It continues to echo through our lives. So the moment we believe in Jesus, guess what? We get to be forgiven, and it never stops. In this song, every verb except two is in the perfect tense. So I want you to think about that as we go through this. Every one of the verbs, every one of the actions that's given to us happened at the moment of salvation or at the cross, and it continues on in our lives, except for two of them. Two of them have a different verb tense, and we'll look at those in just a minute. One author stated the truth of our forgiveness this way, and the fact that God is a good daddy. He says, there are many of you that I suspect believe you will never be accepted by God because of the things you have done. You doubt that God could ever forgive you. You want to believe the message of grace, but somehow you feel that you're outside of the reach of his mercy. When we feel this way, we imply that the life of Jesus was not of sufficient value to pay for our sin. But Jesus gave his life so that you and I could be forgiven and might be sure of our eternal destiny in heaven. And if you have truly put your trust and confidence in what Jesus did for you, you can say with absolute assurance, I am forgiven and I am going to heaven. Amen. We say this not because of some inflated sense of our own goodness, but because of our humble awareness and gratitude for the fact that the Son of God gave his life so that we might be forgiven and be made right with God. We cling to this fact, knowing that our Heavenly Father knows how to give good gifts and is indeed himself a very good daddy. When I learned that, I wrote in the margin of my Bible, I am no longer identified by my sins. I don't see myself any longer based on my sins. I see myself on the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and that God is a good daddy. That's the first stage. Is that the chair you're sitting in? Have you started there? God wants us to move to the next stage. Look at the next stage of maturity, verses 12 or 13 and 14. He says, I'm writing to you fathers. Now that he leaves the middle chair to get to the end one. Because you know who, him who is from the beginning. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. So we're at the other end of the spectrum of maturity, and these are men and women who have walked in a long direction with Jesus over a period of years. They're folks who understand how um, great God is, how much more God is. He's not just daddy anymore. He is now the great almighty king of kings, the creator of all things, the mighty one, the timeless one, the all-knowing, all-powerful, compassionate one. Their faith has deepened. When you read the book of Job, this is what Job was experiencing at the end of the book. Now, we know that Job went through some of the deepest life crises you could ever uh, encounter. He's kind of off the scale in terms of suffering. And as he's wrestling through all of this, his experience of God is, is being tested as well in the darkness of the night, in the deepness of his pain. And he gets to the end of the book, chapter 38, and God visits with him. And he answers Job out of the whirlwind in Job 38, 1, and he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And four chapters later, after God has peppered Job with all kinds of questions about where were you when the world began and where does snow come from and who feeds the animals and all of these things, at the very end of these chapters, Job finally responds to God. And he has this deepened sense of faith. Job 42, 1 through 6. Job answered the Lord and said, I, I know that you can do all things 
and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That is the faith we're talking about. Lord, I know you can do all things. You're sovereign. I know you're powerful. I know you're great. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You will have your will in this world. He ends it with this statement. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I humble myself and repent in dust and ashes. This kind of faith goes through life in the midst of all of its suffering and pain and says, God, I'm going to trust you. I know you're great. I know you're a good daddy. I know you're powerful. Nobody can resist your will. You're allowing these things in my life for a reason. I'm going to trust you. That's a very mature faith. And we might say to ourselves this morning, how do I get to that point? Maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, that's the kind of faith I'd like to have. I'm not there yet. How do I get there? Well, look at the middle chair, because this is the answer to the third chair. Verses 13 and 14. He says, I'm writing to you young men, young adults. I always love it when we have our young adults here. You guys are at such an exciting stage of life. And he says, this is true for any person who is in their faith at this point in life. Notice what he says. I am writing to you because you've overcome the evil one. How often are we concerned about Satan's influence in the world? And this is an individual who is conquering the evil one and all that he brings. He says, I write to you, young adults, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. How many of you would like to be that at that point in your faith? Right? But that's the middle chair. That's the chair that gets us to the mature chair. Now, it is true, would you agree with this, that God has conquered Satan at the cross? Amen. Why is he still allowed to trouble us, to be loose in the world? Wouldn't it have been better at that moment to have just bound him, thrown him away, and been done, right? But God allows Satan to continue to exist in this world so that we would become mature. What is true about this middle chair? What does the text say? What is true of this this place of maturity? They have overcome the evil one. They are strong because the word of God abides in them. If we did not have that kind of enemy, would we ever be able to attain that kind of maturity? Now, I know. (laughs) I wish God had done it differently. It's not easy to face evil in our world. But this level of maturity is gained by the word of God. We have to absorb God's word every day. And by the way, you remember all the verbs in this are perfect tense? Here's the two that are not. They're in the present tense. Right now. Here and now. The two verbs are to be strong, present tense, and to abide in the word of God and let it abide in you, present tense. Do you see the difference? I want you to notice this. Perfect tense. This happened, we are forgiven, God's a good daddy. Perfect tense. We can know God in a deeper, more lasting way, and that continues in our life. Present tense. Strong. Word of God is in you. There's a reason why John writes it that way. He says this is the stage where we have to pay attention to the Word of God, where it has to literally be something that 
abides in us. That word means to settle in, get comfortable within us, permanently persevere in us. It stays within us every single day. At the very front of my Bible, I have one quotation I wrote years ago. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And it's been a guiding light to me over the years. I've got to spend time in God's Word. We have to spend time in God's Word. What is your practice of daily time in the Word of God? Are you letting it abide in you? Is it permanently occupying a home in your heart? Does it affect the way you live your life? One of the fellow pastors I really enjoy reading is Wayne Barber, and he says it to his congregation this way, and I want you to hear him for us as well this morning. He said to his congregation, you mean to tell me the Word of God plays that kind of role in my life? Oh, folks, how many times do we have to say it? This book is not so much a map, it is a mirror. Maybe you're not in the Word of God daily. I don't mean you have to spend three hours a day studying. That's not what I'm saying at all. But are you studying it for yourself? Are you trying to discern the things of the Scripture for yourself? Why would you want to do that? So that you can know the mark God wants you to hit. To know the truth. Because the truth sets us free. If not, you may be living in sin and you don't even know it. One of the hardest things we're finding about counseling is that when people come and say they want help, you take them to the Word and they either look at me, uh, they either look at... Oh, there we go. I have it wrong in my notes. They look at you like, that's not my problem. I've never heard that before. To sin is to miss the mark. To miss what God has set up, what God requires, the standard that God demands and commands of every individual. What I choose to do in my way, then I have sinned. But that very choice I have missed, by that very choice I have missed the mark. God's word helps me avoid that. Here is the true battle. Folks, please hear this. This is the true battle. This is why the devil fights this whole matter of Bible study, the building of your life around the centrality of the scriptures, the authority of the Bible. Ignorant and rebellious Christians are great tools in the devil's hands, but victory is for those who know and apply the word to their experience through faith and obedience. Psalm 119, 9-11 says, How can a young person keep their way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That is my prayer for us, is that the Word of God would have this daily abiding presence in us to guide us in the truth and to help us have victory over Satan. So why do we need spiritual maturity? Why is this so important? Why does John take all this time with us? Why are we taking time this morning to talk about it? Well, the last few verses tell us. Look at verses 15 through 17. John tells us why we need spiritual maturity. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves, and this is present tense again, if they love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, all three of these are not from the Father, but are from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus says, don't flirt with the world. The world system, its worldview, uh, the world is not a passive environment. It's not a place where we can live and dwell and not be pressured or affected. It battles for our attitudes and affections every single day. 
And this is not just the physical earth. We are commanded to love it and to care for it. It's not just people in the world. We're commanded to love them and care for them as well. This is the world of Satan's supernatural system that controls all of our surroundings and the unsaved world around us. John writes in 1 John 5.19, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's the world he's talking about. One Christian author puts it this way, Christians are not to love this world system. The world's philosophy is that all life is the here and now, so let's get all we can out of it. Let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It is a philosophy which is bound at one end by a cradle and the other by a casket. This philosophy is plastered on every billboard alluded to in every magazine and shouted from the internet and social media. What is it? It is that there is nothing better, nothing higher, nothing more precious than what this earth can give us, money, pleasure, or fame. That is what we are not to love, the world system. And so John draws this deep line in the sand, and he says, if you love the world, the love of God is not in you. That's a pretty deep line in the sand. If you are caught up with a craving for more of the world's wealth, uh, influence, uh, pleasure, you cannot have a loving relationship with God if those are your focuses. Jesus was so clear on that, right? No man can serve two masters. You serve one or the other. Those are the things that mark our world system. Look again at verse 16. You see it in your text? For all that is in the world, in that system that Satan controls, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, all of these are not from the Father, but are from the world. So would you take a moment, let's pause for just a moment. Would you invite God to examine your heart? Because as we look at American Christianity today, the majority of people are pursuing those things. And the love of God is not in them. I think this is one of the reasons why we struggle as an American culture in Christianity. The desires of the flesh. These are the inner cravings we all feel naturally. It's our natural bent. The compulsion to want what we want when we want it. It's that unrestrained uh, inner desire for wrong things that we all feel from time to time. And Paul writes in Romans 1.24, it's the beginning of the slippery slope down toward uh, debauchery. It says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. There's the desire of the eyes. This is where the world tempts us with its physical attractiveness to engage in uh, the things that the world offers. Not just what our heart offers, but what the world would offer. It's something that we want out of the world. And the third is the pride of life. Now, interesting, the first two come from within and with the world, but it's not something we have yet. It's what we want. It's that desire. The third one deals with something that we already have. It's the pride of life. It refers to our boasting over our wealth and our status. The feeling good about the car I drive, the joy of having this better home than the other person, 
the pride of life, the bragging, vain confidence in our own resources. Some authors have titled these different ways. Max Lucado says it's the desire to enjoy, achieve, and get as the primary things in life. Griffith Thomas, one of the older commentators from years ago, calls them the desires to have, see, and be. I've called them over the years the desires to immerse, amass, and impress. We feel these things within us as human beings, and the world encourages them. And God says to us this morning, these are not from the Father. They are from the world. And folks, they're passing away. They're diminishing. They're decaying. And he says, because of that, why would you ever invest yourself in it? Men, think about this. Can you imagine spending hours and hours repairing an old, thoroughly rusted pipe under the kitchen sink rather than replacing it? You spend hours polishing that old, rusty pipe to make it look better. You duct tape some of the holes just so that the flow of the water isn't as great. And then you sit back and admire the gallons of water that pour out of it when your wife turns on the faucet. Why would, would you ever do that? No, you go to Home Depot, you buy a new pipe, right? But that old pipe is passing away. Why would we ever invest time in that? Women, think about this fact. Would you ever spend hours making a special meal for your family using ingredients that are outdated by a year? The expiration date is a year old, right? And you carefully measure them into a bowl, and you add fresh spices from a home garden, and you joyfully serve it to your family, hoping nobody gets botulism. Can you imagine that? Of course not. Why? Because it's passing away. Young people, can you imagine spending time admiring and trying to wear your parents' old clothes? You sneak them out of their closets, right? Try them on, admire yourself in the mirror, take a few selfies, send them to your friends as you're looking like your parents in their old clothes. No, why would we ever do that? Besides, in 30 years, the fashion will come back around again, right? Why don't we do that? Because those things are passing away. So why in the world do we invest ourselves in this world system, in its standards, in its values, in its wisdom, its power, its fame, its wealth? They're all, they're all passing away. They're ineffective. They're uh, out of control. They're corrupt. They're doomed. And God says to us, I've got something much better coming for you, a new heaven and a new earth. And, and notice in the text it says, this is reserved for those who do God's will who say, not my will, but yours be done, instead of sin which says what I want when I want it as often as I want it with the flesh. So what do we do with these truths? Let's go back to the chairs. Which chair are you in? Are you that newborn, which is a great place to be in the body of Christ? We want more and more newborn believers. They know they're forgiven. God is a good daddy. Is that the extent of your faith? Is that the substance of your faith? Are you in the young adult chair? Are you strong? Does the word of God abide in you? Are you overcoming evil in the world? Are you overcoming the evil one himself? Are you one of those fathers, mothers, seniors who knows Abba, daddy, he's a good daddy, but I know so much more about him. I know he's sovereign. I know he is the one who controls all things. He will always take care of me. What chair are you in this morning? You've got to start there. 
Secondly, we have to move the chairs closer together. Because as we as a church face the world, and in particular that is Satan's system, the one that he owns and controls, and anyone who is not in the kingdom of God in Christ is owned by Satan. As we face the world as a church today, we have to face it with light and love together. We can't be discriminatory that somebody isn't as mature as I am. They haven't grown enough in their faith. We need to do this together. And thirdly, we need to be inviting people who are in this chair to move to this chair. If you're a young adult this morning in this chair, you ought to be looking for newborns that you can invest your life in. To say to them, this is what the Word of God says. This is how you get strong. This is how you beat Satan. And if you're in this chair, you ought to be inviting a young adult to experience what it means to know the deepness of God, the greatness of God. I added a fourth chair. It says full maturity. And that's because none of us have reached the end yet. And we need to keep moving. I think God would encourage us this morning, first of all, by saying, I know where I am in the faith. I'm in the faith. That's a great thing to begin with. I know that we can do this together as a church. And I know that I have to keep growing. Don't be content with what you've got. I love what uh, A.W. Tozer wrote. He said, every person is as close to God as he wants to be. He is as holy and as full of the Spirit as he wills to be. Where would you like to grow? How would you like to change? And Satan will attack every one of these chairs. He will say to you, you're not good enough to be forgiven by God. He will say to you, the word of God doesn't matter. And he will say to you, God is not in control. I am, and you're not. And you have to push back and say, I am forgiven. God is a good God. I am strong in the word of God. I know my creator and keep growing in our faith. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, you are a good daddy. Oh, I know not all of us have had good dads, and so for some of us that's a bit of a foreign concept, but as we look into the scriptures, as we look at life, as we look at what you've done in the lives of others, we can do nothing but conclude you are a God who is good and compassionate and loving and kind and generous, gracious, forgiving, merciful. God, so much. Thank you for forgiving us and continuing to forgive us as we need it. God, thank you that you make us strong through the word of God. Oh, may we be a church that embraces the word of God within to continue to delight in the truths that it gives us and to obey the commands of Christ because we love you. And God, as we go through life, thank you that you continue in our experience to deepen our understanding of you. That was for emphasis. <laughs> God, this morning we just open our hearts to you and say, teach me, help me to grow, help me to be different. Do not let me be content to be where I'm at. And this morning, if you don't see yourself in any of those chairs, oh, I invite you to come into relationship with God who loves you so much, who wants to forgive your sins and to allow you to experience the freedom of being out of Satan's control. We do that simply by saying, God, I need you. I'm a sinner. I want to be saved by grace. I want to know that I am in your family. And uh, Father, you do that for us when we confess and repent. So Father, guide us, help us to grow. Help us to be your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.